So as you know, the Advent season is the season leading up to Christmas, the birth of Jesus. And I want to speak this morning about hope amidst worlds undone. Kind of, kind of creepy sounding, isn't it? So the Advent season is a preparatory season as well as a penitential season, meaning it's kind of a spiritual two-a-days for us or a spiritual training camp as we head toward Christmas. We take this journey every year, and hopefully it at least tempers just a little bit. You know me, I'm, I'm an incrementalist, a, a 1% improvement kind of guy, so maybe Advent tempers just a little bit our drives to consume, our drives to appear wealthy and affluent, our drive to try to purchase amends with loved ones and friends through gift giving, our drives to not be actually virtuous, just consumer virtuous. And this preparatory and penitential season of Advent can maybe help with some of that, a little bit of that. We can't serve all of that. This isn't a miracle season. Let's be reasonable. No. The four themes for the four Sundays of Advent are hope, peace, love, and joy. And as Aurelia and Fran and I thought about these themes for this Advent season, we thought about how cliche they might sound, and they kind of do, right? And we thought about how disconnected from reality these themes could be, and at times they kind of are, right? And our goal for this Advent season is to try to bridge that gap between these virtues, these ideals, and the real life that we're all actually experiencing right now. That's our goal. Maybe we'll get there. We'll see. I don't know. That's our goal. The theme this week is hope. We're talking about hope, and I don't know that I can impart hope to you through my words, mainly because I have a real problem with hope personally. I have a real beef with hope. Anyone else? Is it just me? All right, I saw a hand. We got two hands, three hands. And when I say hope and having a beef with hope, I mean it at least in the common usage kind. Often to have hope, when we're told to have hope or just have hope, it means that you're supposed to practice this kind of mindless, uncritical acceptance of the status quo while expecting it all to magically change. And I realize my beef with hope here might be offensive to some of you or out of touch, or you might feel a little attacked. I'm feeling attacked right now, Matthew. But one of my goals is always to be as helpfully honest as I can. And in fact, one of my New Year's goals, what, 11 months ago, is I said, I want to say at least one thing per sermon that could maybe get me fired. (laughs) And I haven't even been fired yet, so I haven't been, I don't know. So I'm trying to be honest about hope this morning. And when I think of hope, I think of questions like, How do we speak of hope without encouraging infantile passivity and powerless victimhood where one waits around for someone else to solve their problems? How do we talk about hope in a way that fosters empowered action towards your hoped-for outcomes? How does a hope framework contribute to movements that disrupt dehumanizing systems rather than telling people just wait patiently because you have a cosmic IOU from God to be repaid at some point after death. As you can see, I can't speak of hope as some kind of precious moments waiting. 
I can only speak of hope as in hopeful activity and actionable hope, whether by us or by God. And too often, in my opinion, we are told to hope in a way that uses hope as a churched-up avoidance strategy. I don't know if this is what Karl Marx had in mind when he famously wrote that religion is opium for the masses, meaning it anesthetizes us from our suffering and it keeps us from taking personal responsibility to move toward hoped-for outcomes. It keeps us from being co-laborers with God, as Paul would write, to transform this world. I don't want that kind of hope. That's not what I'm here for. In my mind, Real hope has a catalytic effect. It changes things. More specifically, it attends to the undone world in and around us. And for just a few minutes, I want to talk about this undoneness in three ways. Are you all track with me still? Are we all still here? started out kind of heavy. It's not going to get any better. <laughs> so first... As I think of our hope as undone, I think of it in the sense that it's not yet expansive enough. It's still an immature hope consciousness because it's small and maybe it's shaped by our own hope needs that are formed within each of our own small worlds that we live in. A few minutes ago, Audrey read the first half of Luke 21 for us, and it begins by Jesus. If you remember, it begins by Jesus contrasting. He's watching this widow who put her last two coins in the offering box for the temple. You remember that? And then immediately the reader kind of gets whiplash all of a sudden because it, it pans then to the disciples and we see them gawking and celebrating the ornate exquisite temple complex itself. And Jesus is like, look, I was trying to tell you a story. Look at this widow Look at the children around her feet. Those are her last two coins putting in the offering box for the temple. And y'all are focused on this massive, ornate, complex temple. And oh, look what God has done. Oh, it's so beautiful. I love it. Jesus points out the depth of her commitment to God amidst staggering poverty. And they just want to talk about a freaking building. So Jesus says, you know what you need to remember about this building you're so enamored with? every stone of it will be torn down. This temple they're talking about here was in the midst of a five-decade-long renovation, a project of King Herod that had been ongoing now for 50 years. Yes, the same King Herod we read about in the Gospel of Matthew who tries to kill all boys two years and under. He would do anything to retain power, kill children, virtue signal by building ornate temples, whatever it took. And the disciples have bought into all that. Oh, look at the temple. But the question I have is why do they notice the awe-inspiring grand ornate temple, but not the impoverished widow giving her last coins to it? I would propose they don't yet have a hope consciousness that yet encompasses her and her desperation and begins to wonder why do we have systems like this? The Christian ethicist, Dr. Miguel de la Torre, we like him around here. Uh, he has a great blog as well. He says that our first task when it comes to hope is to actually embrace, anyone remember from the metamorphosis group? Hopelessness. Our first task is hopelessness. That's paradoxical, right? 
He says if we really want to care about the people that Jesus cared about, we have to abandon our need for assurance that everything will be okay, and we have to enter other people's despair world. And from there, we can form a hope consciousness with them that might actually be to their benefit. Chris Arnade, he's one of my favorite Twitter follows, not followers, follows. <laughs> Anyways, Chris Arnade, he's a former Wall Street bond trader turned photojournalist. He takes intentional walks through impoverished and neglected parts of our cities and documents it so that he can meet the residents and build relationships and document the challenges of their daily lives. He is learning to practice hopelessness with them and then on occasion some form of hope with them that actually matters to them. And he recently documented his walk through Albany, New York, and he documents these beautiful, grand, ornate political buildings, beautiful, you know, millions of dollars worth of property adjacent to abject poverty. And he documents how the people drive in from all over the suburbs and the wealthy parts of the state to work in these beautiful, ornate political buildings so that they can help all the people right next to it living in abject poverty. And he says they're completely disconnected from one another. It's not unlike that widow and her two coins and the beautiful, ornate temple. The people driving in to work in these political buildings, they don't have any sense of hope consciousness of what would it actually, what is hope for the people that we are trying to serve here. So we could pick on them, but let's just bring it closer to home. This Advent, what does it look like for you to expand your hope consciousness? What is hopelessness and hope for one of your fellow community members here this morning? The person on your left or right or in front of you or behind you. What is hope for your students if you're a teacher or your clients? What is hope for those who will get through the holiday season just on prayer and several trips to the Round Rock Area Serving Center? What is, what is hope for them? What is hope for the unemployed, the underemployed, or the overemployed, those of us who are run ragged and burned out and exploited by our jobs? I didn't mean to include myself in that. That's not. <laughs> those, what is hope for those who are living in caregiving situations? My guess is, all of these people, their hope is not what we, that, that we would have grand or, and ornate temples or amazing church services or complex theologies or that we would use all the right virtuous words. All these things have their place, but they probably aren't central for many. But what is? And that's our first task, to know the hopelessness and the hopes of those around us. The second sense in which I use this phrase, hope in an undone world, is to mean something that is coming apart, something that is disintegrating. We might say, I am feeling undone, or society feels like it's coming undone, or these kids are undoing me. Jet read for us the second half of Luke 21, and I want to focus in on verse 26, where it says, people will faint from fear and foreboding for what is coming upon the world. What's really intriguing here, and it's a, it's a nerdy kind of intriguing, so 
is that the reference to the world here doesn't mean the cosmos, doesn't mean the universe, doesn't mean the natural world like this beautiful tree out here. It doesn't mean that kind of world. It means the human created world. It means the human political and economic world. This was an intentionally chosen word. It means literally civilization is coming apart. Not the cosmos. The universe is fine without us. doesn't need us. The human created world, it says, is coming apart. Civilization is disintegrating and the fallout is utter despair by people. In Jesus' time, he's talking about the complete breakdown of the Jewish temple system, the cultural and religious center that held their meaning universe together. In Luke's time, when he's writing this book two decades later, he's probably talking about the Romans are bearing down on us, and we need these words to try to figure out how to navigate this world. In our day, 2,000 years later, we're seeing this human-built world come apart. We're seeing the undoing of it. We've been seeing it for years now. Some of it we've manufactured on purpose. We've built highways through historically black and brown communities because we didn't want them elsewhere, so we're going to stick it there. And if in most cities, you'll see this is how the infrastructure has been laid out. We've manufactured inflation to run hot so that we can try to get our national debt down below 100% of our national product. By the way, that debt is so high because we've spent trillions undoing Central American countries and Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan, among other places. We've been at this work of undoing for decades now. A couple of months ago, coming up to the 20th anniversary of 9-11, Brown University published a report calculating the cost of the 20-year U.S.-led war on terror, and they said it's cost $8 trillion dollars and 900,000 lives, not counting indirect deaths like starvation and disease and displacement. We are responsible for lives undone around the world. But let me bring verse 26 a little closer to here and now and the undoing that we feel at our level. We could say that the myth of the American dream is coming apart. And being undone. Y'all hear this kind of stuff from me all the time. I'm sorry. But for example, for the average male worker, it now takes, uh, male, M-A-L-E, homonyms. For the average male worker, it now takes 53 weeks of wages to cover 52 weeks of expenses. See a problem there, right? 53 weeks to cover 52 weeks. For the average female worker, it takes 66 weeks of wages to cover 52 weeks of expenses. See the problem? The average worker in our society hasn't had a raise in real terms for 50 years. We can get cheaper TVs, but the stuff that really matters is further and further out of reach. Homes, affordable higher education, affordable health care. We are increasingly financially fragile. And I don't expect these trends to change, especially with low-skilled labor regularly getting replaced with technology. The world is coming undone for many of our neighbors in this world. The other day at Walmart, I counted 20 self-checkout stations being overseen by a single employee. That means one person and 20 computers replaced 20 
employees. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying it is. But I will submit to you for these 20 employees, the human built world has come apart for them. The powers are shaking. They know Luke 21, 26 intimately in a way that we don't. The same could be said due to the extreme left and right entrenchments that we're seeing in our society or existing a new COVID variance. And we're all having this experience on the ground that's the same. We're feeling verse 26. The human built world feels like it's coming apart. And where is hope amidst such an undone world? I know this, those first two points have been heavy. I'm sorry. This can be discouraging. So let me end with what is actually my favorite part of all these verses that were read for us this morning. Verse 28, it says, When these things begin to happen, stand up straight and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. That's beautiful, right? This points to the third sense in which I use the word undone. There is an action component to hope that we have to do. It's undone. It isn't complete yet without movement. When these things happen, Jesus says, straighten your back and lift your head. When the world is undone, stand up because there is more going on than you can see with your eyes. When the world is undone, straighten your back because there is too much at stake for you to stay hunched over hiding. There have been times in my life where I've stood up and straightened my back amidst the heavens shaking and the world coming undone. And they're some of my proudest moments. There have been times I've read about or witnessed others standing up, straightening their back, lifting their head. I've seen it with many of you making significant life changes, challenging sanctioned norms and narratives. Jordans, I see you. Moving across the country, Davis family, I see you. Starting new careers, that's several of y'all in here. Building your lives in ways that diverge from what was prescribed for you by others. Letting fake, fragile security and certainty disintegrate around you because you feel, as our scripture says, some sense of redemption is at hand. There is more than just the shaking of the world right now. There is something here. I can sense it. I am being ransomed or saved from a world coming undone. I have to stand up and be a part of this. In its original context, these words spoken by Jesus and recorded by Luke were probably meant to comfort Luke's local church as Rome bore down harder and harder on the stubborn Jews and early Christians who literally wouldn't bow to Caesar. And so, of course, he records Jesus saying, stand up and lift your heads. I can imagine these words and how this command to do so would be accompanied by divine salvation. It would have been really meaningful to them. But what about in our day? Do these words and our spirituality and the story of Jesus mean anything anymore? As we head toward Christmas, waiting four weeks for that and practicing hope and hopelessness and standing up straight amidst a world gone mad, does it mean anything? 
I would say that's up to us. Are we going to stand up? Will we stand, lift our heads, and live as if we are being safe from a world increasingly undone? And in this Advent season, as we are headed toward Christmas and the birth of Jesus, the season in which we all feel frantic and overwhelmed, what does it look like for us to stand up, to lift our heads and live as if redemption is at hand? As Fran says, I can't do that work for you. This is all of our journey and responsibility, but for the courage and strength to do so, we pray. Amen.